From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Inflation is cooling and interest rate hikes are slowing down. And yet, regardless of where you are in the world, you're probably spending more and more money on renting or owning your home. Homeownership has long been a traditional path for building wealth. But as prices skyrocket, that avenue for financial security is becoming less accessible to people across the globe. Bloomberg's Ari Altstetter and Kara Wetzel report that if you bought or refinanced a house in the last few years, chances are you're going to be paying that high interest rate on your mortgage for years to come with no relief in sight. The pain from higher interest rates is cumulative. It gets harder the longer you have to bear them. Someone, let's say with a variable rate mortgage, who saw their payments or, or their interest rate go from 25 to 3% up to 7%, may think, I can bear that 7% for a few months. But the longer you get past that few months, the harder it gets. The impact of what we're seeing is that homeowners who have already locked in low rates are sitting on those and are essentially not moving. So our supply has gone way down, and that has led to people who are entering the market to confront still high prices. I'm Craig Gordon. Today on The Big Take, the global housing market faces a cold reality. Kara, interest rate hikes and inflation have both slowed around the world, but despite that, borrowing costs are still higher than they have been in recent years. Why is that? Well, as central banks began really raising rates aggressively last year and rapidly, they sent interest rates much higher. The bond yields have been soaring in most of the world, and particularly in the U.S., 10-year treasuries, of which a lot of borrowing costs are based on, and particularly mortgage rates are very sensitive to. Those have gone to this highest level in many, many years, and as such, mortgage rates have followed. And inflation is slowing, and central banks, including the Fed in the U.S., have paused their campaigns to stop their rate hikes. But the thing is, when central banks stop the rate hikes, that doesn't necessarily mean that the rates go down. They stay where they are. So we have had mortgage rates that have soared to the highest level in a generation, and they're going to basically stay there unless there is some major event that causes central banks to come in and actually lower rates. And the prospect, though, that they are going to lower rates to where they were for you know much of the past 15 years since the financial crisis is, is pretty low. So rates and particularly borrowing costs for houses are going to stay elevated as far as we can tell pretty well into the future. So Ari, how have these increased borrowing costs affected the prices and the supply of available homes? The impact on prices has been interesting. 
Borrowing costs are a driver of demand. Higher borrowing costs should equal less demand. And so that has, in a lot of countries like Canada, New Zealand, the UK, resulted in a decline in prices. The thing is, it hasn't resulted in nearly as big a decline in prices as you would expect, as central banks even expected, relative to the rise in interest rates. And the reason for that is because in virtually all these countries across the developed world, there's also a real shortage of supply. There's just far fewer houses than people that need to live in them. And so that's kind of put a bit of a floor and meant that house prices haven't reacted as much as they should have, one would think, or as they need to, to make them affordable given interest rates where they are. So how has all of this affected global economies? Well, it means that for the last decade and a half, housing was a driver of the global economy. It, it was a tailwind. Buying and selling, building became a big part of a lot of local, national, regional economies. For the foreseeable future, it's probably going to be more of a headwind. There'll just be less buying and selling. There'll also be less building. Builders need to borrow to build. And it's harder to do that when rates are as high as they are. And particularly hard to do that when there's fewer people buying. So all the activity that goes along with building homes, all the activity that goes along with buying homes, you know, when people buy a home, you got to buy all sorts of white goods, appliances, furniture. That's economic activity. And there'll just be less of that given rates where they are, given the economy where it is. So Kara, who is most affected by these rate increases? Is there any part of the economy that's sort of immune to them? Well, depends on where you're looking around the globe. So the U.S. is actually relatively unique in its structure of having 30-year fixed mortgages that are federally backed. And so the effect on that is there are actually a lot of winners and, and people who are benefiting from these higher rates. And those are people who have mortgages that are locked in at low rates. It's the people who are trying to get into the market now and confronting still elevated prices and less supply combined with higher borrowing costs that are kind of running into trouble. In other parts of the world, you have mortgages that reset much quicker, you know, one year, two year, five years. And those are people who are now facing higher payment costs. And again, the, the people with loans and particularly the people who took on loans at peak prices during the pandemic boom years in 2020 and 21 that, you know, were maybe already stretching their budgets to pay for the house itself and now are stretching their budgets with borrowing costs that have pretty rapidly increased. So they are facing, you know, higher payments and having to confront difficult choices and how to, you know, maybe cut back on spending elsewhere in order to keep their house. Kara, let's take a look at the U.S. What does the impact of sustained higher mortgage rates look like there? In the U.S., where the preferred financing mechanism is a 30-year mortgages that are fixed rates, the impact of what we're seeing is that homeowners who have already locked in low rates are sitting on those and are essentially not moving. So our supply has gone way down, and that has led to people who are entering the market to confront still high prices. So the median U.S. existing home price is up 43% since the start of 2020. So already people are facing very high prices. 
And normally when borrowing costs would rise, those prices will come down. But because there is just not enough supply out there because few homeowners want to give up their 2.5%, 3% rate to move into a new house and take on a 7 or 8% mortgage rate, there's just not enough supply to meet demand. So you've got now what is the least affordable housing market since the 1980s, according to the Intercontinental Exchange. And Goldman Sachs estimates that in 2024, transactions will fall to the lowest level since the 1990s. So we have just kind of essentially it's a frozen market. It is what the professor at the Wharton School, Benjamin Keyes, called the early stages of a glacial period. And it's unlikely to thaw anytime soon. It's just going to be a very long slog, as Mark Zandi from Moody said in our story, of just the housing market muddling along. And that has knock-on effects, limiting mobility for jobs. You might force family members to live together and elderly people to age in place, which just keeps more homes off the market that could otherwise go to a family. And it's also, you know, more effects on building and supply. And it's just creating this situation where few people will be able to buy houses, which is a key driver of wealth. So, Ari, this is clearly a global phenomenon, but let's zero in on some individual countries to talk about the situations there. New Zealand has experienced a massive boom in property prices since the start of the pandemic. How has the central bank's rate hikes there affected housing payments? The central bank has raised its benchmark rate 525 basis points since October 2021, which is a lot in a very short amount of time. And the thing that's unique about New Zealand compared to the U.S. is that mortgages have to be renewed or refinanced every three years or less there. That means borrowers who bought right at the peak are facing a renewal really soon. 25% of mortgages in New Zealand were taken out in 2021, and that was approaching the top of the market right there. And a fifth of those were first-time homebuyers. So there's just a very large pool of people in New Zealand who will be exposed to these higher interest rates over the course of this year and into next year. That'll have an effect on their disposable income. That'll have an effect on their lifestyles. And you're starting to see that now. People are being forced to cut back in their spending as they accommodate to this much higher interest rate shock, is what it's often called. And that'll weigh on the New Zealand economy for the next few years. And some people may end up in actual financial distress. Some people who aren't able to cut back their budgets elsewhere, redirect money to interest payments. Some people who just don't have enough money may find themselves in distress, may end up having to sell their homes or have the banks take their homes. Are there any economic factors that are sort of helping buffer against some of these more extreme outcomes? Well, New Zealand, like some of these other countries, benefits from very good population growth which helps support house prices and also low supply. Frankly, New Zealand is another country that hasn't been building enough houses for a very long time. And fundamentally, those factors, this imbalance between supply and demand, demand driven by population growth and supply, which has been constrained and and looks like it will continue to be constrained by various factors, including shortages of labor, materials, limited land that's zoned for residential, that'll continue to sort of support New Zealand home values, even as the subset of mortgage holders face some tough years ahead. After the break, 
how the high cost of borrowing is affecting homeowners around the world. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So Ari, in Canada, more so than most countries, the global housing boom contributed to the purchase of investment properties. How has this changed with the higher interest rates? Investment in real estate became something of a cottage industry in Canada over the last decade and a half. Recently, a study from the government found that up to a third of homes were owned by investors in two of the country's most populous provinces, British Columbia and Ontario. It really turned into a bit of a frenzy where that was the place you put your money if you had some savings. Because there were just better returns in buying a Toronto condo or a Vancouver condo and renting it out than you could get investing in stocks or bonds. But that's switched right now. The surge in interest rates the last year, two years, has really turned that on its head. So now, uh, Bank of Montreal did a study. Buying a Toronto condo now would yield about 3.9% to an investor annually. Buying just a vanilla Government of Canada treasury bill, that's a one-year treasury bill, that'll get you 5%. And so you don't have to think about it very long. Owning real estate, it's a bit of a headache. You got to keep the thing from falling over. You got to make sure people are paying their rent on time. A treasury bill doesn't require any of that. And so that is expected to sort of draw some of this demand that has helped spur the Canadian housing market to record heights. That'll start to sort of be pulled away in the coming years for as long as this math holds up. So is this affecting the construction of new housing in Canada? Absolutely. Another development of investors playing a bigger role in the Canadian housing market has been they became a source of financing for new development. New condo projects would sell units pre-construction, and of course the buyers for these would be investors. Condo developments had to sell as much as 80% of their units pre-construction to even get a bank loan to get started. That math has sort of turned on its head now, and developers can't rely on it anymore. Thousands of units that were slated for construction in Toronto, in Vancouver, have been cancelled or put on hold because there's not enough investor demand. So the evaporation of this source of demand in the housing market could end up limiting new construction in the future. And that's a problem in Canada. It's also a problem in other countries as well. So Ari, where else are we seeing higher rates affect the construction and the stock of new housing? Well, it's actually a very big problem in Europe, where similar to the U.S., similar to Canada, similar to New Zealand, there's a pre-existing shortage of homes that's been building over years. But in continental Europe, the pace of construction has really, really dropped, largely because of high interest rates. Developers need to borrow money to get developing, and, and interest rates where they are prevent them from doing that. 
In Germany, new building permits have fallen 27%. In France, they've fallen 28%. Sweden, which is one of Europe's worst housing crises, the building permits are the worst since the 1990s. And the pace of building there is calculated to be about a third of what the country needs to meet the needs of its citizens, to make sure everyone can find a place to live in Sweden. So high interest rates when it comes to the development of new homes has really made a bad situation worse in Europe. And for as long as these high rates persist, it's hard to see how the problem in these European countries is going to get solved. So, Kara, we've talked a lot about how these rates are affecting borrowers and to some extent about developers as well. What about landlords? How is this affecting the rental market? Well, the rental market in many places, you know, rent gains have slowed just as job gains have slowed, et cetera. But there are, as Ari was saying, people who looked at housing as an investment, seeing the price gains everywhere. So people who perhaps stretched themselves and took on extra houses with the hopes of renting them out, thinking that it was kind of like a no-lose bet, that there will always be rental demand and interest in these houses, to which you know extent, because there is a shortage, there is going to be rental demand. But it's the people who perhaps took on debt and especially variable rate mortgage that would then be running into trouble. We're seeing this particularly pronounced in the UK where the buy-to-let industry is a pretty big one and you've seen mortgages there that reset pretty quickly and the, the landlords that took on these mortgages are almost all variable rates. So they're seeing an increase in defaults there by landlords and you know the UK is of course dealing with a pretty severe cost of living crisis with higher energy prices and the effects of the Ukraine war really playing out there. So that's another area where this rapid increase of rates is really hitting both the housing market and the people who are benefiting it for so many years, landlords being one of them. Ari, in the story, you write that the impact of sustained higher mortgage rates will be most pronounced in 2024. Why is that? This is particularly in the U.S., but it really applies to most countries, to tell you the truth. It's because the pain from higher interest rates is cumulative. It gets harder the longer you have to bear them. Someone, let's say with a variable rate mortgage, who saw their payments or, or their interest rate go from 25 to 3% up to 7%, may think, I can bear that 7% for a few months. But the longer you get past that few months, the harder it gets. So you see that, I mean, in countries with a high proportion of variable rate mortgages, like the UK, for those buy-to-let landlords, in Canada, there's also a very high percentage of variable rate mortgages. Also, Australia and anyone who has to renew in one to, to three years. Those are people that got in with the lowest possible rate who are now going to have to refinance at the highest rate in decades. And the longer they have to deal with that, the harder it's going to get, which is why in a lot of countries where there's a big wave of refinances coming in 2024, the housing markets there could get worse. And you see that in New Zealand, you see that in Canada. In the U.S., where there's not the same refinancing risk, it's also expected to get worse, strangely enough. And that's just because the freeze the care was talking about, the, the glacial period, it also gets worse the longer it goes on. Any buyers or sellers who, for whatever reason, had to or were ready to already at the beginning of this period of higher interest rates, they've made their move. 
And so there'll just be fewer houses for sale, fewer buyers able or willing to buy the longer we go into this era of very high interest rates, which forecasters like Goldman Sachs expect to continue in the U.S. into next year. So, Kara, that all sounds kind of grim. Do you see any relief coming from high mortgage rates or the shortage of housing stock? Well, not really, not anytime soon. I mean, the Federal Reserve has signaled we are in a higher for longer era, and that's kind of what it all boils down to. Last year, you know, when the rates began rising, there was this concept around the U.S. that mortgage brokers would try to sell, marry the house, date the rate, figuring you could just buy the house you need to buy and you can worry about refinancing your rate longer. Well, you know, a lot of those people, they're not going to be able to refinance into anything lower probably anytime soon. There might be some moderation as, you know, the Fed pauses, potentially even cuts if the economy slows. But, you know, you're not going to go back to 3% anytime soon. So it's just going to make it harder and harder for people to enter the market. The bright spot is like nobody is calling for a housing market crash, which arguably would be far worse for the economy, for the financial system, and to see prices plunge to the point that it hurts everybody and hurts the economy. So we're sort of in a better situation than we were in, say, 2008, when there were foreclosures, incredible distress, and pain for people being forced to sell. Now it's just a frozen state. And so, you know, you could argue, I guess that's better than the financial crash, you know, but a lot will depend on what happens with the economy. I think it's, you know, still remains to be seen just kind of what lies ahead in 2024 for the economy. And of course, there's all sorts of things we don't know that could happen and affect things either way and potentially push housing prices down if there was an economic slowdown and job losses. And that might make it a little easier for borrowers to enter and make the Fed decide to cut rates and thaw things out a bit. Bit. But as of right now, I think we're talking years where we might be in this situation in the U.S. When we come back, how persistent high rates will shape global economies in the years to come. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So Ari... Kara mentioned the U.S. Federal Reserve and this idea of higher for longer, higher interest rates to try to stamp out inflation. How are other nations, central banks looking at this problem and are they taking any steps to help? I think generally the higher for longer era is a global phenomenon. I mean, the U.S. is unique in the fact that the economy is just humming along despite the higher rates. And so other places that we talked about, like Canada, like New Zealand, other countries that have higher debt loads, higher consumer debt loads than the U.S. And like we said before, have more frequently renewing mortgages. They're more exposed to those higher interest rates. And so they're starting to feel it already. And they're probably going to be starting to feel it more in the next year or two. And so that will put more pressure on central banks in those countries to cut rates earlier as their economies will slow faster and potentially more severely. But overall, 
are interest rates and mortgage rates going back to what they were in 2020, 2021, even for a good chunk of the decade and a half before that? Probably not. And that is really a global change that I think only recently has started to sink in to financial markets, professional traders, but also just regular people for whom the most important interest rate is the one that allows them or doesn't allow them to buy a home. So, Kara, what are you watching for sort of next? What do you think might be the next story we might be writing in this incredibly interesting series of developments around mortgage rates? I think we're waiting for signs where buyer demands is somewhat exhausted and people gave up and and maybe there are signs that the borrowing costs are just too high. So there will be sellers out there, like regardless, some people do need to sell and move for whatever reason and people uh, will decide to put their homes on the market and maybe it will slow down. And so prices will moderate somewhat and perhaps enable more buyers to get in. We will be closely watching the Fed and Treasury yields to just see signs that mortgage rates will come down. They have come down somewhat in recent weeks as the Fed has signaled, you know, that it might stay on pause for a while. Now, maybe homebuyers who've grown accustomed to the fact that, okay, mortgage rates are at this level and will be for a while are just going to make it work and buy it because fundamentally people do need to buy homes and you're just going to have to accept the fact that it's going to cost more to do that. So you can still see, you know, some sort of leveling of supply and demand, but which way is it going to go? Is it going to be the rebound in demand from people accepting these higher rates? Or is it going to be kind of supply edging up as homeowners decide to sell and there is more of a balance there? Ari, what are you watching for globally in this front? I think in the short term, I'll be on the lookout for distress in a lot of these countries. These countries that have a high proportion of variable rate mortgages, a high proportion of mortgages that need to be renewed or refinanced after two, three or five years. That wave of renewals could get some homeowners into trouble. And with interest rates expected to stay where they are, that means there's not a lot of buyers. And even a marginal increase in forced sellers puts some pressure on prices. And so I think that'll be something to watch over over the next three to six months. By the middle of next year, more economists outside the U.S. are starting to think interest rates could at least start coming down. And short-term interest rates, the ones controlled by central banks, those starting to come down cause long-term interest rates, bond yields, which are dictated by traders in the bond market, that could cause them to come down more too, which means both fixed rate mortgages, which are set off bond yields, and variable rate mortgages, which are set off central bank rates, could start to come down. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the housing market when that happens, because you'll see already supply is starting to build from the distress we have seen and the pressure of high interest rates. And so the marginal increase in uh, demand may offset that, may not. And that'll be the real question. And the real estate market is a very seasonal market. And everyone spends their time waiting for the big spring market when most buyers and sellers decide to come. And I think in places like Canada, Northern Europe, the UK, the spring market is going to be an interesting bellwether because a lot of people who might have to sell might be holding on until then. 
And that's also a time when central banks may start to lower interest rates or signaling that they could lower interest rates, which would cause bond yields to come down. And so I think that the spring market will be a key test for real estate markets in a lot of countries. Thank you, Kara. Thank you, Ari. Thank you, Craig. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Bloomberg CarPlay, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. This episode was produced by Sam Gebauer. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidron. I'm Craig Gordon. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.